Our world is changing, at least in North America. Uh, if you lived uh, 200 years ago, let's say, and somebody would have asked you as a child uh, what you wanted to be when you grew up, you might have said, well, I just want to grow up. <laughs> or, or, you know, you might have said, I want to be healthy, in other words. I want to grow up and be healthy. I, I want to be... You, you may have said, I want to be married. I, I would love to raise a family. And probably high on that list, you, uh, kids would have said, I, I want to own a piece of land someday. I want to have my own piece of land. Now, if you lived 100 years ago, you may have answered that question a, a little bit like this. I want to be productive. I want to make something. I want to build something. I want to discover something. I want to make a difference in our world. Now, if you would ask children from, let's say, the last 50 years or so, they would have had a different answer, and parents had different answers to that. But most kids would have said, well, I guess I want to be happy. In fact, a lot of parents have said in the last 50 years, I just want my children to grow up and be happy. Because we've really unlocked most of the doors to living a long and healthy life, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, everything has been built, it feels like. Everybody, everything has been discovered already. So what's left to do? Well, I don't know, but I just want to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. In the last 15 years or so, it's shifted even a bit more than that. Now most kids will say, and if they don't say it, it's still true, I want to be famous. I want to be famous for something. That's why there's such a long line for shows like American Idol or The Voice. They want to be, even if they can't sing, they'll take that opportunity to be famous because they might be seen on TV anyway. Even some of the horrific events that have happened have been done by kids maybe in school shootings who want to be famous, want to be known for something. Even if it's infamous, they're still famous. It's such a powerful desire today that even in the face of every statistic that famous people are the least happy people in our culture, a young person will still say to that, yeah, maybe that's right, but I still want to be famous. Pat O'Brien, an accomplished sports anchor and entertainment news anchor, was fired after his public fallout in 2005 because of his struggle with alcohol. In an interview with Oprah Winfrey, he said, and I quote, The thing about fame is that we're people, we are people who love to be loved by strangers. We can't get enough, he said. You just want more, more, more. The only number you have is more. He went on to talk about the hundred upon hundreds of famous people that he knows, and he mentioned that everyone he knew who was famous was battling through some sort of unhappiness or addiction or chronic depression. He said, and I quote, I can name out all the stars that are happy, maybe 10 at the most. Madonna, an iconic performer, was asked in an interview for Us magazine, are you a happy person? And she replied, I'm a very tormented person. I have a lot of demons I'm wrestling with, but I want to be happy. I'm working toward knowing myself, and I'm assuming that that will bring me happiness. I don't know. What do you think? Will that bring her happiness to know herself more? Happiness, I think, is a bit like cotton candy, right? Like you have it, and then you don't. You think you want it, but it doesn't really feed you. It's fleeting. It has no substance. It's like the wind. Uh, Happiness comes and goes. Like you can never catch it. You can never keep it. If you go outside with a jar and catch the wind and then bring it back inside later, there's no wind left. You just can't keep it for another day. It happens to us more than we can actually uh, uh, create it. 
I did a quick word search of the Bible, and I found that there's only 20 times that the word happy, or another form of that word happiness, is used in the entire Bible. The Bible doesn't really talk about happiness 20 times in the entire Word of God. But the word joy is used 242 times, and its form of the word, which is rejoice, is used another 154 times. That's 396 times that the Bible talks about joy, or being joyful, or rejoicing. And that makes sense, really, because happiness is dependent, isn't it, upon our circumstances, and joy is not. Happiness comes and goes, because it's an emotion based on a desired outcome. But joy is deeper. It's always available to us because it's derived from the object of our devotion. That's why the Bible can command us to to rejoice, right? It can't command us to be happy. It never commands us to be happy. It never tells us even that's a goal in life, to be happy. But it does say to rejoice. In fact, Philippians 4.4 has a verse. I used to sing it as a child. uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Remember that song? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I said rejoice. And everybody would sing it. And then we would do the rounds with it as kids. Right? How can Paul say rejoice as a command? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In 2 Corinthians 7.4, Paul says this. Even more crazy. I am overjoyed, he says, in all our affliction. What? Those two, how do they, nobody would say I'm happy in all of our affliction, but he does say I'm overjoyed in all of our affliction. It doesn't make sense because he's talking not about happiness, but he's talking about joy. Well, this morning I'd like for us to take a look at our second classic Christmas song because it speaks to the origination of, and I think even a good, topic to talk about the reason for the continuation of our joy as Christian people today. Joy to the world, the song says. Now let's talk a little bit about the history of the song first. The song was written almost 300 years ago, 1719, by a man named Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a bit of a rebel. He was the eldest of nine children. And the reason he was a rebel was because of his family. He was raised as a religious nonconformist. His dad and mom were. His dad even went to jail twice for not following the Church of England. So he was raised in a home where his dad went to jail because of being a nonconformist religiously. Isaac Watts was also very intelligent. He learned Latin by the age of four. He learned Greek by the age of nine. He learned French by the age of 11 and Hebrew by the age of 13. So if you're keeping score, that's five languages by the, by the male age of puberty. So at the same time in my childhood, when I was looking in my dad's mirror at my armpits, right, and, and reading Mad Magazine, this kid had mastered five languages. What's Watts, however, was a bit like me because he thought that Christians should be more joyful. And you've heard me talk about that a lot. He would often complain about the, and I quote, the dull indifference and the negligent and thoughtless air that stirred upon the faces of the assembly as they sang standard hymns and psalms. So his father, tired of his complaints, challenged him to write better songs then. And he did. And by the way, his songs were not well received. His words seemed too upbeat. They were repetitive and irreverent. John Calvin had urged his followers to sing only metrical psalms. And most Protestants in that day followed the lead of John Calvin. And although that Isaac Watts did not reject metrical psalms, he thought that that kind of music lacked passion. 
He didn't think that you had to, you know, use the entire biblical psalm literally in a song. He thought only use a portion or only use a word or a phrase. The heart of it is what mattered. What was the psalmist trying to say? So, for instance, joy to the world comes from Psalm 98. But if you open your Bible to Psalm 98, uh, you might not even recognize this song and that psalm going together, other than for the fact that in Psalm 98 you see the word joy a lot, to be joyful. You see, because the purpose of the psalmist was to tell us to be joyful. And so Isaac Watts jumped off of that theme and wrote this song, Joy to the World. But in the 18th century, it seemed superfluous and irreverent to keep repeating phrases like, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Let heaven and nature sing, let heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. And so it was biblical, I believe, but people would say it's not literal. His music couldn't be sung. Because it wasn't literal enough. And although people tried to, the truth of the story is many pastors were fired because of his music. Churches split over his music. Uh, uh, Papers were written for and against his music. But eventually, as time went on, of course, his poems won the day. This music to this poem was finally adapted and arranged by Lowell Mason in 1839. You ever notice how these songs didn't really have music until 100 years later? It... He got it from a melody that originated from Handel's Messiah. And then it took off. The interesting thing about this song as well is it was never meant to be a Christmas song. Only one verse actually even gives a veiled reference to Jesus' birth when he says, let earth receive her king. That's it. And yet it became uh, popular as a Christmas song. By the way, more than popular, the most published Christian hymn in North America today is this song, Joy to the World, sung by the Supremes and Andy Williams, my favorite, uh, but Mariah Carey as well, Whitney Houston, Faith Hill, hundreds of others have sang this song and published it. But what's this song about? Let's talk about that. Is it biblical? Is it biblically founded? And can we really learn from it? Well, let's do what we did last week, and we're going to look at all four stanzas, and we'll quickly go through them and find what he's talking about in each stanza. But this 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 song really teaches us about joy. And I'll tell you where Isaac Watts thinks, where he got from Psalms, where he thinks our joy should derive from. The first point is simple. Our joy derives because a world has received her king. In other words, joy comes from a world receiving her king. He writes in the first stanza, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. I pondered that for a while this week, and I think that actually only a Christian can sing the words to the song and actually mean them. In other words, only a Christian could really be joyful that the earth is receiving her king. And in fact, in that day, not every uh, person actually received the king joyfully. And the Bible tells us they did not, in fact. In fact, let's read Matthew chapter 2, the story of Jesus being born. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, I'll just read the first four verses. And you'll, read, you'll hear about somebody else who did not receive the king joyfully. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened 
and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. King Herod was not full of joy. And it said, neither was Jerusalem. They were afraid. They were frightened. The historian uh, Josephus writes and and tells us a lot about King Herod that the Bible doesn't tell us. He was a paranoid ruler. In fact, he was one of the first rulers to ever use a secret police. He had a secret police who would go undercover and report back to him the feelings of the general populace toward him. He even killed three of his own sons because of the simple possibility of them growing up and taking over his throne. Can you imagine? So when the Magi came to his throne and said that there's another king, King Herod pretended to be interested. In fact, uh, uh, if you have the NIV, it says he, wanted, he said he wanted to worship him, but he was lying. He really wanted information so that he could kill this baby before it grew up to be king. The Magi, by the way, knew this. They didn't know it naturally, but an angel appeared to them and told the Magi not to go back to King Herod. So King Herod simply waited. And when the Magi did not return back to report to him, King Herod knew that you know, the gig was up. So he simply sent out his murderers to kill all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding villages two years and under of age. Can you imagine that? King Herod shows us, however, a correct picture of our lives today. Jesus Christ comes as king. He comes to be king in our lives and nothing less. And that is either met with joyful submission or the only other rational response is to want to kill Jesus. You see, this is what upsets me about uh, uh, Christianity today. If Jesus came to be simply a friend, he would pose no threat to mankind or to Satan. I think one of Satan's greatest accomplishments in North America today has been actually in the church, not outside of the church. Because Satan has reduced the Christ king to this friendly baby, a wise prophet who's come to give his instruction about life and after death, a submissive savior even. But if that's true, why would atheists, even today, attack a simple manger scene? What's so offensive? You tell me, what's so offensive about a baby in a manger filled with straw? What's, what's so offensive about a man who simply would have come to want to help us and heal us and lead us into a better life? What's so offensive about Jesus being a wise sage or a, a comforting prophet? Right? Nobody really gets upset when people give their lives or stud, to study of Muhammad or to live a life like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or Buddha, uh, to order their lives by Nostradamus or Joseph Smith or L. Ron Hubbard. Nobody attacks people that give their lives to that. So why attack a manger scene? Because atheists know what even some Christians do not, that Christ came to be king of all mankind. The Magi received the King Jesus joyfully, didn't they? In contrast to Herod, they traveled 600 miles or more, they say, to get to Palestine. They were surprised that the king wasn't coming to the capital city. Can you imagine their surprise? They go right to the capital city, to the king's front door. And they think this is obviously where the king's going to be. And they ended up at Herod's door. They expected a bigger deal. Royalty, pomp, and circumstance. They expected the baby king to be born in a, in a palace in warmth and for the streets to be filled with excitement. Instead, they found King Herod fearfully not understanding what they were talking about. Fear in the streets the king being born unnoticed, 
to a teenage mom delivered to common peasants in a throwaway place like Bethlehem. But how did, how did they receive Jesus? How did the Magi receive Jesus? Well, Matthew 2, as you continue on, gives us these verses. Verse 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. I think that probably in the entire life of Mary and Joseph, the best gifts, the most expensive gifts that they ever received in their life came on this very night when these strange royal magi who had traveled for several months, and some say even up to as long as a year, had come simply to see their baby. What does that tell us? That tells us what it's always told us in the Bible, that there can only be one king in your life. And if you say yes to this king, it means you're saying no to all of the other kings in your life because the Bible says you can't serve two masters. What does the Bible say about the rich young ruler? It says he walked away sad, right? Remember? Because why? Because he wanted Jesus to be a teacher, not a king. He wanted an instructor. He wanted uh, uh, somebody to help him with his life. And that wasn't good enough for Jesus because Jesus came to be king. And so the rich young ruler walked away sad, the Bible says. In Acts chapter 8, there's a different ruler, however. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, there was a treasurer of Ethiopia, the Bible tells us, who accepted the king gladly and received him joyfully and was baptized immediately and became a preacher. There are only two responses when the king comes. And one is joy, and I think the other is rejection. Although rejection can look like a lot of different things. It can look like fear. It can look like just ignoring it. Avoiding it? But the Bible says, and this is true, and I'll say it again, that every, uh, one day, what? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And so when I read that scripture, I just say, someday, some people will do that joyfully. And some people will do that out of fear and hatred in their hearts. But every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. There's joy when the king comes. But there's also, in his second stanza, he tells us that there's joy when the Savior reigns. Isaac Watts Watts writes these words, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ. Now, I don't want to... I want to be careful here with what he's trying to say, but I think it's interesting that he uses this phrase that we really never use, that the Savior reigns. Unusually, we, usually we think that a Savior, what, a Savior heals, a Savior releases, a Savior delivers, a Savior sets us free. But Isaac Watts says a Savior reigns. And I think it's because in their day, in earlier days even, for almost everybody, in their, in their faith they understood the difference between simply claiming that you have a Savior and living a life that illustrated that the Savior was reigning in your life. As king, do you see the difference? The Savior comes to save all, the Bible says, but for only the called. For only those who submit to his reign in their lives does the saving work. You see, everybody wants a Savior. Why not? Everybody simply wants a Savior. Remember Jesus in the Bible? He shows us that. In, in the New Testament, he's feeding, by, you know the story of the feeding of the 5,000? It's actually 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 because they only counted the adult males. But there's women and children as well. And so he feeds everybody that day with a few loaves and fish. 
And everybody gets all excited because, oh my gosh, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior, right? And so the next day, they wake up and there's more, the Bible says. So now picture 25,000, 30,000, and they're all waiting for this next day. And Jesus says to them, no hamburgers and fries today. He says, that was, what you don't know is that was the appetizer yesterday. The real meal is me. So if you eat my flesh, you'll never be hungry. If you drink my blood, you'll never be thirsty. And what happened? They all walked away and said, he's crazy. You see, because Jesus was saying, I've come not to save you from a contemporary condition of hunger. I've come to save you from an eternal condition of hunger. Everybody walked away. Because they didn't want their Savior to reign over their lives. They wanted to reign over the Savior. They wanted to use him to satiate their own needs. Isaac Watts never separated the Savior from the King part. The King is the Savior. The Savior is the King. And it's true in your life today. I say this because don't you think there are many, many people, maybe I think younger generations struggle with this more than the older generations. But I think there are many, many people today who want the benefits of the Christian life, in other words, the salvation, everlasting life part, but they don't want any of the membership dues. And I'm not talking about works-based religion. I'm talking about relationship. If someone says to you, or me, you know, I want to go to heaven. I want a Savior, but I'm not sure about that Lord part. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do in my personal life. I'm not ready for that yet. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do in my sexual life. I'm not ready for that yet. What's he going to ask of me? I, 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 you know, you can even today, I think, even more than the sexual life is money life. Like, get, get out of my money. But, but, I, but I agree that I need a little help along the way. I want the Savior part, but I'm not ready for the King part. What they're really saying, even if they don't know they're saying it, is they're saying they actually already have a Savior. You see, let me, let me just point on this a little bit. Whatever you're afraid to give up, whatever you're afraid to lose, is something you're already trusting in as your Savior. It's not doctrinal. We think it's doctrinal. Oh, if you agree to A and B, you get into heaven. It's, it's relational. It's personal. I can't give mental assent, mental agreement that there's a Savior that I need, but live my life in a way that my heart actually values a different Savior. That's what we just saying about in the offering. The offering goes to your king. Your offering is going to your king as well. The question is, where's your offering going? You see, my king is my savior. My savior is my king. Now, just so there's not misunderstandings here, it never means that I'm perfectly compliant or perfectly obedient. It's just that I desire to be so. That I want a Lord in my life. That I, uh, that I bow to him as well as him saving me. He sets up his life He has the the crown rule over my life and the claim over my life. You know, when when God, remember when he saved the Israelites, he brought them across the Red Sea, the Red Sea opened up. I think there's a movie coming out. I can't wait to see it now, right? We're going to be able to see it on the big screen, and hopefully it's good. But the Red Sea parts, and everybody crosses on dry land, and then the sea comes crashing down, thereby killing the old master. What did God say when they got to the other side? Did he say, uh, okay, guys, I did it, you're free. Go, be happy, live, right? Your old masters are dead. No, right on the other side, God said, great, now I will be your God. I will be your king. 
I will be your new master. The old master is gone, and I am setting myself up as your new master. Because a savior, you see, who parts the Red Sea, is the savior who reigns in your life. And nobody would have said at that moment, well, thank you for saving me from the Red Sea, but that's all I need. You see, if you're struggling with joy, I think this is why for most Christians. Not because he's a king and we don't like it, it's because we don't want him to be a king. Because no one is joyful living in duplicity. No one can be joyful in no man's land, you know? When you're serving two masters, you ever try putting your feet in two separate canoes? How long do you think you'll be able to to move along in the river that way, right? Being less than one whole person wears you out. Indecisiveness because of competing motives will cause you to lose self-esteem. Bad behavior because of competing loves will cause you to lose self-respect. Covering all your bases never lets you know that you've come home. Choose you this day. Whom will you serve, the Bible says. Joy to the world if the Savior reigns in your life. And you will have joy if you set up both God as Savior and King in your life. If he reigns in your life, then you'll have a more joyful life. The third stanza, he talks about something different. He talks about how joy comes in our growth in Jesus Christ. In other words, in our sanctification process, in our maturation process, when we mature in Christ, joy comes. He says these words, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. What's he talking about? You know, the Bible teaches us, it doesn't say it this way, but I've always said it, we're saved in a moment, aren't we, from the penalty of sin. In other words, as soon as we cross over into Canada, as soon as we get over to Hawaii, right? whenever we get into the new reality, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We have eternal life. But then we're also every day, all of us who are Christians, are being saved continually from the power of sin. That's the sanctification process. And I've always said someday we'll be saved from the presence of sin. We won't have to deal with it any longer. But this verse is talking about the second kind of save. The saving that takes place in our walk with Christ. Because why? Because sin always promises joy. Did you know that? Sin always promises a joyful life. It never delivers a joyful life. Let me put that a little different. I think sin always promises a happy life. And it never produces a happy life. Remember in the Garden of Eden? Just, just take a bite. It's almost like if we could have said it today, he would have said, listen, it's not going to hurt you, but it might help. You see? It, yeah, that's what he did. He's saying, did God really say? Listen, it's not going to hurt you, but it might help. It might make you better. It might make you wiser. It might make you more knowledgeable. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, there's only benefits to this. Satan, in other words, promised them something more than what they had, but what did they get? Something much, much less than what they had. Damnation came, separation, death, alienation, embarrassment, self-consciousness in the worst of ways. Sin always promises the same today and always delivers the same today. There's nothing new about what Satan does. There are lots of things I want, personally. But I know, I'm at least smart enough to know, biblically mature enough to know, That if I go after those things simply because I want them, and they go against my God, my Savior, who's reigning in my life in the process, then the very things that I want will be the things that kill me. How many times have you seen a broken marriage? And I'm sure you have. If you've even been involved in church, you've seen them. And then you've seen them from this, you know, people talking, politicians. 
And you always see the same thing. It never changes. There's, al- there's, al- there's always brokenness afterwards, isn't there? I mean, there's shattered children who don't know if it's their fault. And they, they love mom. They hate dad. They, they love dad. They hate mom. They're not sure where to go. And then there's a broken spouse, either the man or the, or the woman. And then you have this, the spouse with the mic saying something like, I'm such a fool. And they're crying. I can't believe I did this. Listen, it meant nothing. It was one moment in my life. Please forgive me. It was so stupid. But it's too late. Now, it's never too late to be forgiven. But it's too late to turn back time and realize that the pain of reaping sin always exceeds the pleasure of sowing sin. In your mind, there is, Satan's right, there is some joy in sowing sin. But the pain is always greater than the joy. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. And sin always promises momentary pleasure, and sometimes it even delivers momentary pleasure, but never for long, and never joy, only sorrow. Why? Because there's only joy. There's no joy outside of knowing and serving and accepting Jesus Christ. And every sin means that you're serving a different master. There's nothing in this world that can save me or you than Jesus Christ, which means there's nothing other in in this life that deserves my full devotion but the king of my life. Remember the younger prodigal son? He came to his senses, the Bible says, and after a fleeting affair with a life of sin, he came home. And remember his expectations of what he expected to find at home? Not much, right? Maybe a simple day's work, maybe some food, maybe a strained employee-employer relationship with his dad. But he came home anyway because he knew it was better than what he had. And what did he get? His father waiting for him on a porch, running to him, the Bible says, hugging him, kissing him, throwing a feast, calling him his son. Can you imagine to hear your dad say after that, my son? Why? This is the truth about God in Scripture. And I'll just give you this little hint. The way of God never seems shiny. You see, God doesn't try to pique our interest through our sin nature. God actually promises very little. He says, come to me because you want me. That's it. Come to me because it's true. That's it. But everything else that's fun is over here. But when you go to him, like the prodigal son, he delivers so much more than what he told you in the beginning. He gives you relationship and purpose and peace and joy and eternal life and happiness and and, and happiness tacked onto the joy in your life. He gives you everything that you didn't even know you would get. It's the exact opposite of the way Satan works. The final uh, point about how we receive joy, and we've talked about three here, the joy because the king is received Joy because the Savior reigns in our life and we stop living a duplicitous life. Joy when we mature in Christ, the sanctification process gives us more joy when sin is less in our life. And finally, joy that comes when we experience truth and grace. I love this. He says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove, and then he says these two again, the glories of his righteousness... That's the truth part. And the wonders of his love. That's the grace part. You know, it's been true in my life, and it will be true in your life, that there's no joy outside of experiencing these two things together, both joy and truth, I mean, both truth and grace. 
That's where joy comes from. You can't take one away from the other. The, there's biblical precedent for this. If you look at the Pharisees, right, they had truth. They had more truth than we do. They studied scripture. They memorized it. They had teachers of the law, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. They spent their entire life devoted to the word of God. They could quote every scripture. They knew the inside and outs of every Old Testament scripture. And, but there's no grace, which meant there's no joy. In fact, Jesus had harsh, word, harsh words for these legalists who knew a lot of truth. What did he say? He called them a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. He said in Matthew 23, verse 15, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert and make them into twice as much a child of hell as you are. Wow. You see, why why is he saying that? Because he's saying there's no way to work your way into heaven. You can't commit your way into heaven. You can't deny yourselves into heaven. That's a road to death. It's It's like tying a millstone around your neck and then tying a millstone around somebody else's neck when you say that, and then saying, come on, let's go for a swim. And the church has struggled with this continually. We make converts and then turn them into twice as demons as the ones who are converting them. But in recent years, let me shift here, I think in recent years the struggle has been on the other side more than on that side, just in recent years, in the last 10 years or so. Because I think the church is struggling now with with talking too much about grace that's void of truth. Jesus loves me. Oh, how he loves me. He loves me. Oh, how he loves me. I love that song. But listen, what does that mean? Is it true that Jesus loves me? Yes. Does he love you? Yes. Does Jesus love everyone? Yes. Does that mean everybody gets into heaven? No. Popular preacher and author Rob Bell wrote a book entitled Love Wins. Love Wins. Wins over what? Truth. And he seems to suggest that everybody does get into heaven someday. I think people confuse grace. Because if you take the truth out of grace, grace has no power to transform. It's nothing more than sentimentality. In our family, and I'll give some suggestions here, which by the way, I'm not suggesting that it's the right way to go, but let me share a little bit about how we try to live our lives in our family. We try to give both truth and grace to our kids. Especially when you have twins, right? Because you have to say, listen, you're not the same. You're not, you're not both equally athletic, I'm sorry. You're not both equally intelligent, although they seem to be pretty much. But we still tell them, you're stronger at this topic and you're a little bit stronger at that. They're not even equally pleasant to be around. Aiden has pros and cons that are different than the pros and cons of Althea, which are different from our five-year-old Olivia. They're not even equally gifted in many ways. That's the truth, and we don't hide that from them, but they're equally loved. All men are not created equal. The Bible never says that. Our Declaration of Independence says the Bible says some people are created, have, are five-talent people. Some are two-talent people. Some are one-talent people. But all are equally loved. Truth and grace. In our family, it's, it's fine to say, Aiden, go brush your teeth. Your breath stinks. But I love you, son. You say both together. We try to do the same thing in our marriage. And how we relate to one another. You see, because if there's, if there's no truth, it keeps us in denial about our flaws. We're just avoiding the flaws in one another. And there's that 
elephant that's always in the room that we're not really discussing with one another the things in our lives that we want each other to work on. But if we're always truthful and we lack love and grace, then what happens to the air in the home? It gets sharp and stale and there's no love, there's no warmth, there's no softness to it. It gives us information but not transformation. Timothy Keller writes it best. In his book, we we read, or we were reading the book together, uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, and this is what he writes. He says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. He's talking about the marriage relationship. It liberates us from pretense, It humbles us out of self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. You know what Paul charges every Christian to do in Ephesians 4.15? He says, speak the truth, what? In love. Let's say that again. Speak the truth in love. The apex of the Christian ministry are bringing those two things together. By the way, it's also the cross. It's the cross. What is the cross? The cross is a, is a reminder to all of us that the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God is so important that it can't be overlooked. It can't be uh, brushed aside. It, it, it can't be swept aside. He said right from the beginning, if you sin, you surely will die. God is not a liar. He will not be mocked. So Christ came to die in order to uphold the righteousness and justice of God. God is truthful. But what else is the cross? The cross is also a reminder that God's love is so overwhelming that he would rather kill his own son at the altar of his truth than you or I. He loves me. Oh, how he loves me. But take that away from truth, and it's just sentimentality. So let me ask you this morning, is the cross about truth or about grace? Is the cross about justice or about mercy? Is the cross about righteousness or overwhelming love? What's your answer? Yes. 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 And I hope, I hope that after I leave, I think the highest compliment that somebody or any of you could pay me is you would say maybe to the next pastor, whatever negative you have, you might say as a positive, you know, one thing about Pastor Don, he always spoke the truth in love. He rules the world with truth and grace. Let me tell you why that's joyful. Because there's nothing more joyful than actually knowing that you actually deserve nothing but eternal death. That that's the only thing you've actually paid for. Many people don't know that. They take the truth part out. There's nothing more joyful than starting with that, starting with the fact that you deserve hell. And yet, not only do you not get hell, but you get the free reward of eternal life added on top. That is the joyful life. That has the power to transform us. I think when we're not joyful, we've weighted one side or the other too much. Either we've accepted grace and we're not joyful because we're not even sure it's gone deep enough. You see, we know there's more stuff we haven't dealt with. We've just accepted grace, 
or we're so truthful that we, that we forget how wonderful the love of God is. No one captures it better for me than Victor Hugo. You know, who, he was an author of the great uh, book that turned into a musical called Les Miserables. And Jean Valjean is shown mercy, my favorite musical of all time. He's shown mercy by this priest, right? This priest shows him mercy because he's an escaped convict and nobody is being nice to him. Nobody will give him food. Nobody will let him in. And the priest lets him into his home when others had turned him away. Saved his life. And that, my friends, Victor Hugo wouldn't tell you, but I'm telling you, that's a picture of mercy. He's not giving him what he deserves. But then Jean Valjean takes advantage of the priest's mercy. He gets up in the middle of the night, steals the silverware. In the famous uh, movie with Liam Neeson, he strikes the priest and knocks him down, knocks him out, escapes with his goods in the middle of the night, and then it shows how he's captured and brought back to the priests. And the soldiers are laughing, of course. It's the death penalty now, and they just want to get the facts from the priest. And they get in front of the priest with Jean Valjean with his head forlorn and down, and they have his bag of silverware. And the, the soldiers say to the priest, <laughs> this is crazy, uh, he, he says that you gave him the silverware. And the priest says, oh, I did. Let that go into your heart. He said, I did. I'm so happy, Jean Valjean, I'm so happy that you brought him back because you know what, Jean Valjean, you forgot to take the silver candlesticks as well. Go get the silver candlesticks. Remember, I told you to take those as well. And they come out and put the silver candlesticks into his bag. And Jean Valjean is almost broken. And the soldiers leave and the priests say to him, now your life belongs to God. You can say that to anybody who experiences truth and grace. Now, your life belongs to God. And in fact, mercy went to grace now, because he not only didn't get what he deserved, but he got something much, much greater. He got the candlesticks as well. And he got love from a priest after he had abused it. And Jesus Christ on the cross is a perfect example of us abusing the love of God. And yet that abuse, through which that abuse allows us to receive the mercy of God. It's like God saying, you smashed me. And the essence that I give up from that smashing is my grace and mercy to you. The soldiers laughing at the cross had the same mercy available to them. Those people who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, had the same mercy available to them. And all of us, the Bible tells us, were those people. That kind of grace, that kind of truth together transforms our lives if we let it. Not just that we escape the rightful punishment of God, but to, that we receive the unmerited reward of eternal life. Joy to the world. Indeed, we're going to sing that song together. And we're going to sing it with gusto today. Let's pray and I'll ask Alan to come forward and play for us.